Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. another episode of GodPod. And uh, today we are continuing with a series that we've been, uh, we started um, a little while ago on uh, major theologians that we either like to read or have uh, influenced us in different ways, or people who've been particularly significant in the history and life of the church. They may be people you've heard of and uh, um, know a fair bit about it, maybe people that you haven't heard of a great deal. So um, that's what we're going to try and do So today. So we have uh, today the, um, the the home team, it's myself, Graham Tomlin, we also have Jane Williams. Hi. And uh, Michael, Michael Lloyd. We do, hi. Good, and um, we're all joining on different from different parts of the world. I'm um, uh, in my new base at uh, Lambeth Palace, we'll talk more about that at some point, um, the Lambeth Palace Library. Uh, Michael, you're in Oxford today? I am in Oxford today with beautiful autumnal colours uh, through my window. Very good. And Jane, you are in? I'm in London, actually. Yeah, excellent. In London too. Despite good. everything that National Rail has done to try and prevent me. <laughs> I'm sure they had you in mind in particular, Jane. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Good. Well, today we are, uh, our last um, foray into a major theologian was um, the great St. Augustine. Where else could we start? But uh, the figure he's probably come up more than anyone else in our perambulations and discussions over the last 10 or 12 years that we've been doing this. Um, or maybe even longer. I don't know. How long is it? 15 years that we've been doing this? Mm. Who knows? We're too old to remember that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But uh, anyway, today we are doing um, St. Basil. That is our figure for today, St. Basil, sometimes known as Basil the Great, and um, that's what we're going to talk about. So they're not, as um, Mike was reminding us just beforehand, we're not looking at Basil Fawlty. No, um, Basil the Great Mouse Detective. No, we're not doing Basil, Basil the Great. In fact, I've always found one when you Google Basil the Great, that's what comes up. You always get Basil the Great Mouse Detective. It's a good um, film. It's a good film. You get a cartoon character, but we're not talking about either of those Basils. Oh, that's a shame, because I might have known something about it. <laughs> yeah, we must do a god pod on Basil Fawlty one time. I think you. That would be that, there. We are. I can see the similarities, Michael. Yes, the ungainliness. Exactly, that's right. Yeah. Um, but today we are doing um, Basil the Great. So, in case you uh, don't know who Basil was, he was born in around 330 AD in um, Cappadocia, which is uh, kind of where we where we think of as Turkey today. Um, he was a what's a sort of well healed into a well-healed family involved in Roman society at the time, um, really came from the kind of elite of that, uh, that world. He came from a very well-known Christian family. His grandmother was a, um, was a wonderful woman called St. Macrina the Elder. Um, he was a pupil of someone called Gregory the Wonderworker. They had fantastic names in those days, much more interesting than ours. Um, and his parents, his, his dad was called Basil, his mother was called um, Amelia and her father, in other words, his grandfather was on, on his mother's side, was a martyr as well. It's a devout Christian family. 
Um, and uh, he was some, um, his brother was, uh, it was Gregory of Nyssa. And uh, he was one of a group of theologians known as the Cappadocian Fathers. Um, and uh, so that's something of his background. Now we'll talk a little bit more about his story as we go along, but um, and that's just a bit of his background. So fourth century theologian, uh, you might remember, Council of Nicaea was in 325. He's working kind of after that period. Um, but Jane, um, you've um, read a fair bit around Basil and um, taught on him. What, what, what do you particularly enjoy about Basil? Why do you think he's particularly important? And why it would, would it be important for listeners to Godpod to know about Basil? I find it very interesting that our, our students at St. Melitus always um, mostly arrive never having heard of Basil the Great and fall madly in love with him. And that's partly because he contributes to so many aspects of our, uh, our theological world. Um, he, uh, as you say, he's a great defender of orthodoxy. He writes an outstanding treatise defending the, the um, deity of the Holy Spirit. So he's a he's a brilliant theologian. He's also um, really works towards social transformation. He he's, he sets up a, a whole um, city uh, in which the poor are cared for and educated, and the sick are looked after. Completely countercultural in his day. So again. Um, that aspect is something that we learn from him. And he's also one of the founders of, of um, monasticism. He, uh, he traveled a bit and saw some of the great uh, ascetics who lived on their own in the desert um, and was deeply moved by that, but, but actually felt um, he wanted to set up a, a monastic model of people living in community. Mm. And he thought we, we, we deceive ourselves very easily, most of us, unless we live in community with people who tell us the truth. So he's contributing to such a range of aspects of our, uh, our, um, our self-understanding as Christians. That's what makes him such a significant character. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that was interested me about him is that, as you say, he, he has this combination of being this this great profound theologian, one of the great theologians of the church. And not, not, many, not many people get called the great. Um, Michael, you might one day get called Michael the Great, but um, it's unlikely. Let's, let's be I, honest. I think, I think the chances are slim, sadly. <laughs> but Jane the Great would be rather good, wouldn't it, really? But, um, anyway, There's so many of us, though. But anyway, he gets called Basil the Great. So he is a great theologian, especially a, particularly important in the establishing of the full divinity of the Holy Spirit. But also this, this strand that you were talking about, Jane, about his interest in the monastic life. And... Um, and I think one of the things that, that he, um, you know, he 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 thinks about is is you know how, how do you become holy as a person, and how do you become fully sort of you know, filled with 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 God's grace and love and 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 holiness. And I guess the traditional you know monastic route was to going to go out into the desert, leave the city behind, leave behind civilization, and go and sort of pray and have acts of devotion and so on. And he's always struggled with that a bit. You know, the part of him was drawn towards that, part of him drawn towards the city. And then in the course of his, his thinking about the Holy Spirit, he comes upon this, this insight, actually, it's that the place in which we are made holy is not so much the desert, but it's in the spirit. It's, in the, it's being in the spirit that, that, that makes us holy as people. And that that actually can happen as much in the middle of the city as it can in the desert, which is why he develops this sort of monastic rule, if you like, for people who are living kind of ordinary lives in, in, in sort of um, in, in, in cities. And that's why, again, he's a kind of really interesting figure as someone who is um, kind of crossing those boundaries and helping people to kind of discover what holiness means in the middle of a busy and 
and uh, connected life. And he lived a very busy life. He was always involved in the politics of the church and arguing about the doctrines and so on, but also um, the kind of you know, civic side, had a lot to say about poverty and about wealth, but he also uh, was fascinated by the life of, of prayer. And that, that I find it's a really interesting idea that you know, the place we are made holy is not a particular place. You don't have to go to a particular place to, to, to become holy, but it's in the spirit, being in the spirit every time, every moment of one's life. He was politically quite radical, wasn't he, Michael? Over to you. No, 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 after you. I mean, he was politically quite radical, wasn't he? I mean, uh, he, mm. um, he wasn't afraid to tell emperors off and to demand money from wealthy people. And um, he, he, did he, am I right? I think he wrote something like, if, you, if you're taking seriously that command to love your neighbour as yourself, you're never going to end up with more possessions than your neighbour has. Because otherwise you don't love them as much as you love yourself. Mm-hmm. And that is quite a challenging thing to say, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, he, he would talk a great deal about um, how resources need to be to be in constant circulation. He was, he was a great, but you preach these really fiery sermons to the rich about hoarding wealth. Um, so yeah, he wasn't against wealth in itself, but he was against hoarding of wealth, sort of holding on to it. And so, you know, he has a very strong doctrine of creation. He's he's not a sort of ascetic in the sense that we must shun all um, enjoyment of things at all. But but the purpose of of being of, of things that we own is that we might give and lend and receive. And so it's that sort of constant circulation of the goods of this world. Um, that when you, I think at one point he, he writes, you know, when when wealth is scattered in the manner which our Lord directed, it naturally returns to you. But when it gathers, it disperses. If you if you hold on to it, you'll lose it. It's only when you give it away that you'll really receive it back again. And um, and that sort of quite sort of radical speaking about poverty and wealth is quite is quite 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 a marked thing. There's a little volume of his um, sermons on on wealth and poverty. It's 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 pretty hard hitting stuff. You know you. you, you you wouldn't go away from those those sermons feeling very comfortable, I don't think, if you were a kind of wealthy person. Do they record what the collections were when he preached? <laughs> uh, they got the accounts of the church and yes, that'd be interesting where, where he was. Yeah, I mean, one, probably the place where most Christians will have encountered Basil's thinking without knowing it often is uh, in saying the Gloria, mm-hmm. because. I, I gather, and correct me if I'm wrong, Graham, but I gather he was the largely the person responsible for changing the Gloria mm. from glory to the Father through the Son in the Spirit, which there's nothing wrong with that. That's all. That's all fine. But um, he changed it to glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit in order to counter both the Arian denial of the divinity of Jesus and the Macedonian heresies rejection of the divinity of the spirit and, and it stuck with us that's something that we say most christians say almost every day is it's a remarkable impact and influence we should pause there for a moment say our word basil 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 <laughs> just to be original okay we'll pick up again um yeah that's that's right i think you're absolutely right on that Michael, it's um because there was a big controversy after the Council of Nicaea 325, which which kind of sort of settled the the Christological debates that you know Christ that Jesus Christ was of the same nature as the Father, although it didn't entirely settle them. There was all kind of debates went on, and he was involved in those later on. But a kind of subsequent debate on that was was all what about what about the Holy Spirit? 
Um, you know, you get this triad, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit spoken of sometimes in the, in the Bible. But what are we to think of the Spirit? Is the Spirit a ministering angel? Is it a sort of um, some, something sent out from God, a created being? Or is the Spirit to be seen as, as divine? And it focused around this question of, should you worship the Holy Spirit? Uh, could you pray to the Holy Spirit? And the Macedonians that you were talking about, Michael, were those who were saying, no, 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 you know, that you... The spirit is a, it's, it's just like an angel, a messenger of God. We should not worship a created being. So you might worship in the spirit, but you don't worship the spirit. And, ba and Basil and his friends in the Cappadocians, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzus, wanted to insist, no, no, we do worship the spirit. Because, and part of their argument was that, that if it's the spirit who makes us holy, who makes us like God, who makes us like Jesus, then only God can make us like God. Um, no created being could reshape and reform us into the image of God. So the spirit has to be God. It's one of the, the, the arguments they use, which is why, as you say, when you read his treatise on the Holy Spirit, it gets very involved and detailed about which preposition you should use when you're addressing the, the Holy Trinity. But that um, reassertion of, you know, glory to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, we give glory to the, to the Son and the Spirit every bit as much as we do to the Father is a crucial part of Basil's in, you know, um, legacy to us as Christians today. Um, and he was insisting that the, the prepositions matter. And it's, I mean, it, it's a huge range of, of influence and, and activity, isn't it? Um, what do you think Graham holds them together, both the monasticism, the theology, the care for the poor, the uh, concern about wealth and the, how, what what holds those things together for mm, Basil? Mm, mm. I think for me it's about it's about his vision of the transformation of human life um he has this idea he talks about how, you know when the book of Genesis talks about we are made in the image and the likeness of God and he kind of divides those two things and he says that you know we are we are made in the image of God but we have to grow into his likeness um, we're made in the image of God. Every human being is made in the image of God. That's what something we kind of possess, as it were, being made in the image of God. All human beings are made in the image of God. But we then have to, if you like, grow into his likeness because of the effect of sin in our, in our, in our lives. Sin sort of diminishes us. We are made in his image, but we're not like him because we're still tainted by sin. And therefore, he's fascinated by this process by which we are transformed into the likeness of God. And um, at one point, he talks about he says this, he says, you know, what is Christianity? It's likeness to God as far as is possible for human nature. It goes on, if you're shown to be a Christian, hasten to become like God, put on Christ. And, um, and I think that's what it is. And that's why he's interested in the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is the agent of transformation. That's why, as I say, he also insists that the Spirit is divine, because this is God at work in us, making us like him, making us like Jesus. It's why he's interested, I think, in the monastic life, because that's the kind of forms of discipline um, which we submit to, which, through which the spirit does begin to shape and transform us. A bit like, you know, when you go to the gym and you do your exercises, gradually you are kind of transformed into a into, into, into a kind of new kind of person. It's why he's interested in questions of of um, wealth and poverty, because um, it's by your use of money um, and the way you treat the poor, the way you treat your neighbor, that's the kind of evidence, the sign that you really are being transformed into the likeness of God. So I think that's, that's that, that I think would be the theme that is right at the heart of Basil, his fascination in 
you know, in the, the, the potential and the possibility of human transformation. We don't have to stay with what we are. Uh, we can be transformed into something much greater and much richer and much better than we are right now. And uh, yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that makes Augustine obviously s such a, a gift is that he tells us about his transformation through mm. history and, and relation. He tells us his, his autobiography um, in a way that Basil doesn't. And I sometimes think we, um, with all of these great figures that we're going to be looking at, we can underrate, you mentioned um, Graham as you were introducing Basil about his, his family. Um, some of whom were martyred. So he's got this um, history of watching faith really making a difference, mm -hmm. people really thinking this was worth everything. Um, uh, his sister, Macrina, uh, both he and Gregory, um, his brother, um, speak with immense um, uh, reverence of Macrina, uh, and who set up a, a who lived to a, a a dedicated life um, with a, a, a group of women setting up a, a women's monastery and speak of her enormous influence on them and and uh, and then so I, I would I would sort of love some of the family table talk and mm. um, as background to, to, to Basil's um, uh, mm. theology and, and Basil's uh, wider contribution because he doesn't come out of nowhere does he, he comes out yeah. of this immense uh, nexus of, of, of witness from his from his family and his friends yeah and you're right he doesn't he doesn't give us enough as much well very few people give us as much internal processing as as, as, as augustine does uh, he doesn't write the confessions in the way that augustine does um there are moments where he does give us a window into his life though because like, he does describe for example that that moment in you know around in his mid-20s when he has a a kind of real renewal and revival of faith. It's a, it's a bit like, you know, as a sort of early 20s, he goes, goes off to Athens and gets rather dazzled by the sort of lights of philosophy and so on there and sort of drifts a little bit from his Christian background. But then suddenly, we don't quite know how and, and where, he has this kind of renewal revival of, of faith. And he talks about how he, you know, he looks back on his, the last few years has been a, being a bit of a waste of time and suddenly waking up as bit like, like a deep sleep and behold, beholding the light of the gospel and shedding tears over his past life and, and devoting himself again to the life of, of prayer and so on. So the, there are moments when you get a, get an insight into his his life. And occasionally he, you know, he talks about the kind of the, the agony and the pain that doctrinal dispute caused him as well, because he was deeply involved in those disputes over the, the aftermath of Nicaea and the divinity of the spirit. And they affected him quite um, quite deeply, so he, he does give those little kind of windows into his 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 life as well. But um, um Michael, yeah. Well, uh, just to say, I guess the nearest thing we get is is probably from his letters. He was a great letter writer, yeah. um, and and we get a certain amount of that personal kind of, particularly the conflict over over the pain of Christian leadership in a way, mm -hmm. particularly yeah. in in context of division. Uh, you you get quite a sense of that, I think, coming through the letters. Yeah, yeah, and you get you get a sense of his mind. I think when you when you read, he, he wrote a series of sermons on the creation. Um, it's called the Hexameron, the sort of six days of creation. That's really what that that means. And I I always find them a sort of fascinating set of sermons to um, to read. He wrote them around about three hundred and seventy A.D. and 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 it's very interesting you contrast his way of reading creation with a sort of modern scientific way of, of reading creation. And he, he reads creation as a kind of reminder of the nature of the creator. 
um, he sees, he actually says in that in these sermons, he says, you know, nothing is useless, nothing is wasted in, in creation, and um, and so he sort of sees lessons of the moral life or the nature of God in created things, and so so for example, he he um, well he has he has his theory, you know, again whether he's right or not is another question, but he says you know originally you know before the fall a rose had no thorns, um, it was just a beautiful thing. But thorns were added to the rose to remind us of the the sorrow and the pain that is near to the the, the pleasures of life. Um, you know, he talks about you know vines uh, being there as a sort of picture of fruit and fruitfulness and the need for us to be pruned and so on. Um, you know, he talks about you know fish. Fish know their boundaries. They know that they're meant to live in the sea and they're not meant to crawl on the earth. You know, they kind of know what they're meant to be doing and where they're meant to go and where they're not meant to go unlike human beings we tend to transgress boundaries all the time so in other words he's he's fascinated with the detail of of, of creation every bit as much as I saw David Attenborough might be um you know he, he, he absolutely loves the sort of you know look, looking into the detail of creation but for a whole different purpose it's not just so that he might understand about the kind of physical or biological makeup of these things but more that he might learn about the creator who stands behind them or the moral life that is to be lived, uh, and so on. And so it's a whole different approach to, to, to nature. You know, every bit is sort of detailed and scientific in one sense, but with a different purpose to it. And that gives you a little bit of the shape of his mind, the way he would go about and just see things differently through different lens than maybe, you know, we do today. And I think a very kind of open mind it, it was it was open to everything it was open as you say to nature it was open to greek literature it, mm. he, he would learn from anything he could learn from yeah. uh, there's a real attractive openness to, to that i think mm -hmm. and, and yeah. very courageous he's reported as having really ticked off the emperor valens mm. and the emperor apparently said nobody's ever spoken to me like that before and Basil said, well, perhaps you've never been spoken to by a bishop before. So um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> he should perhaps be a patron saint for all, all bishops who need their courage in both hands. And again, I mean, just as we as we close on it, I mean, Jane, I wanted to go back to what you were saying a little bit about um, his sort of radical nature and his um, this idea that you, you were talking about his sort of creation of this city, as it were, this, this kind of whole community, which was... And much more just living together. It wasn't just a church, it was much bigger than that. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? Well, I mean, again, it, it is um, striking that um, uh, Basil, who came from this reasonably well-off family, um, felt this immense sense of commitment to um, people who his society didn't think were worth anything. Uh, that it, it was not a society that 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 thought all human beings were equal or of great value. Uh, and so um, Basil set up this, yeah, basically a city um, in, in which um, the, the poor could come and be fed, the sick could come and be taken care of, uh, children could be educated. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and he shamelessly demanded money from people, uh, many of whom had no commitment to the Christian church, but he said they still had commitment to taking care of these uh, of the poor, uh, and um, it, it is that again that combination of um, uh, theological um, depth and uh, and a desire to transform himself mm. that that with that commitment to 
transformation of, of the world around him um, that, that is so striking. And, and it, that's the thing that I think a lot of students who, when they come across Basil for the first time, it's that, that, that whole um, set of things that they find so enchanting because you can really see that faith isn't um, just about our interior life with God. Mm. It is about um, the world that God has made and the people who God loves. Yeah, yeah, it was cool. It was, I don't think he called it this, but it was it was called the Basiliad eventually, wasn't it? It was kind of named after him, this idea. I thought of, I wouldn't mention that because that sounds a bit boastful, but as, as you say, I don't think that's what he called it. Yeah, so. that's right. But it was, as you say, it was a whole kind of social system that was not, that was about, yes, yes, the life of worship at the heart of it, a kind of, you know, sense of, of, of prayer and worship and this rhythm of the monastic life lived in the city, but also, as you say, a place of education, of health care, of, of, of welfare, and yeah and security it, it, if you think how many yeah, people yeah. would have been so deeply insecure in that world yeah and he, he came from a very wealthy background spent most of his inheritance on setting it up and as you say pestered his wealthy friends who's a very good fundraiser even got the emperor to contribute and um and i think it, despite the fact they disagreed theologically about everything exactly. <laughs> he's probably frightened to be spoken to like that exactly. <laughs> yeah and i think he, he, he was there was a time of famine i think at one point where he he used his influence as the bishop to kind of what he called to open the storehouses of the rich, you know, going around all these rich people are saying, come on, look, people are people are starving here. And basically set up a very large food bank in the middle of this, this place to kind of enable people to kind of survive during times of famine and so on. So again, he's an extraordinary figure, hugely influential in theology, in the monastic life, in sort of social welfare, in uh, relief of poverty, and in so many different ways. And he kind of the more you read about it, the more you think, well, like, yeah, I, Basil the Great probably is the right title. Well, there we go. We have reached the end of our time and uh, we could, as always, talk more about Basil of Consign. But hopefully that's given you a little bit of a taste of, um, uh, of Basil's right. You can, uh, if you want to read uh, more about him, you can um, uh, read his, his sermons on creation, the Hexameron, um, his work on the Holy Spirit, a little book called On the Holy Spirit. There's a, there are sort of... Um, there are uh, collections of his sermons on wealth and poverty that you can access. So um, if you want to read more about Basil, but uh, uh, one, of the, one of the truly great figures of, of, of um, Christian history and it's been fascinating to talk about him together. So um, thank you as always, Michael and Jane for the conversation. Real pleasure. Our pleasure. And uh, thank you all for listening and we'll be back again with another God Pod before too long. Goodbye. Godpod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.